Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and I apologize for the delay. It's been almost two weeks since the last podcast, and I kind of ended it on a cliffhanger, so I'm sorry, sorry for that. It just, it was a busy uh, few weeks. It wasn't necessarily because I was diligently in study. I don't want you to get that impression. Although I did study a lot about this issue, it wasn't all about that. Uh, so in the last podcast, I had mentioned that um, I had come up with kind of a conclusion at least a tentative conclusion to this study about the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And so I'm going to present that today, um, but it's kind of difficult to present because, as I have sort of alluded to in the past, this issue, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, is really not the issue. I mean, on the one hand, we'll, we'll talk about what that symbolism in the book of Revelation is, where this beast only appears in its final form uh, in the book of Revelation, but you need to know really Daniel, all of Daniel to, to really make sure your hypothesis is correct with that picture in, in the book of Revelation. It's really kind of a final exam in some ways of, of all kind of this holistic Bible prophecy thing. And it really culminates in Revelation 17. You have to, if you don't even have your book of Revelation, seven-headed, ten-horned beast, right, you will falter in the last part of Revelation. I have written this down in kind of a paper format which I will I am intending to fill out with footnotes later. I've just found that there isn't really a better way for me to explain all this without being in a paper format because, you know, it basically, in, a, in, in that scenario, I'm just kind of telling you what I think, and the footnotes in that context would sort of fill in the gaps because I find that if I had to explain every aspect of this, it would just take forever and it would be incredibly dry. So I think that's the best format. So... Forgive me if I'm not going to be quoting a whole lot of references in this. Just know that those references exist, but they're in a footnote form. And if they're relevant, I will include it in the actual text, I'll say, too. Though this will probably be a little bit of a dry podcast because I will be reading a lot of text, I did want to do it that way because I wanted to be more precise in this podcast, uh, even though it might be harder to listen to. I'll try to speak a little bit slower than I normally do while reading it. Also, the kind of... You know, some of the stuff that I'm going to say, you probably have guessed and heard me talk at length before about. So I apologize for that if some of this is, you know, uh, treading over ground we've already uh, been on before. But there are some aspects like the Mediterranean issue that we'll get into about midway through this that I think are totally new. I don't think I've ever heard before. And I think make really good sense of a lot of the things and really help to uh, understand how all this plays into what we should look for as watchmen in the end times. Okay, with all that preamble, let's just go ahead and get started. The Near Far Issue Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are connected. They are both talking about the rise and fall of the same world empires. Here, by the way, is a rather large footnote where I will be talking about how um, Daniel 8 and the Medo-Persia and uh, Greece goat and ram there give us further evidence that Daniel 7 is, in fact, talking about Greece and Medo-Persia with the bear and the leopard. Um, but I'll continue. Uh, so they are both talking about the same world empires, though there is a distinct difference in the focus of each chapter. As prophecy students know, there is often a near-far component to Bible prophecy. I think of it like a dial with the words near on one side and far on the other side. I think that Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 11 are more or less speaking of the same events, 
but each chapter has the dial set to a different place. For example, I think that Daniel 2, with its multi-metal statue, has the dial turned almost all the way to the near side, though it would be prophecy from Daniel's perspective. The primary purpose of Daniel 2 was to be an accurate prediction of the first coming of Jesus to establish the kingdom of God in the first century. This can be seen by the way the kingdom of God rock that destroys the earthly kingdoms is described to grow over time to become a mountain that encompasses the world, combined with Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God being established with his ministry in the first century, and how it would grow over time like a mustard seed or leaven in bread, eventually culminating in his second coming and the millennial and eternal kingdom of God. In Daniel 2, the weakness and division which characterizes the feet and toes of iron and clay that try to cleave together with marriages but fail seems disconnected from the other prophecies of the strong Antichrist and his kingdom, and I think is best understood to be the weak and divided Roman Empire in the 4th century and the two failed political marriages between the East and West empires just before its total collapse. That being said, I think that the Antichrist and his future end times kingdom are also in view in the feet and toes, but because of the focus on the near aspect in Daniel 2, that is an accurate prophecy of the first coming of the Messiah, the end times aspect is almost invisible. That is to say, the Antichrist and his end times kingdom is not an explicit teaching of Daniel 2 and must be read back into the text after reading Daniel 7. It is different than the following four visions of Daniel, where the Antichrist is clearly in view, which we know because of themes like the three and a half years, the war on the saints, the abomination of desolation, the blasphemous and boastful words, etc., all of which are missing from Daniel 2. It should be noted that holding this interpretation changes nothing with regard to the traditional, futurist interpretation of the end times. As long as the fourth beast of Daniel 7 is understood to be a two-staged kingdom that gets its ultimate fulfillment with the Antichrist in the end times, nothing changes. It is, however, important to make this distinction that Daniel 2 is showing a different facet of the kingdom of God's takeover of the world and transfer of dominion to God, and it is unquestionably true that, in one sense, the kingdom of God began with Jesus in the first century and will only culminate in the end times. In other words, Daniel 2 is more about one's theology regarding the kingdom of God than it is about eschatology. Moving on to Daniel 8, which is talking about the ram and the goat and the 2300 evenings and mornings prophecy, etc. I think it's talking about the same rise and fall of kingdoms here, though it zeroes in on Medo-Persia, Greece, and the four generals after Alexander the Great, which would eventually produce Antiochus Epiphanes. It is distinct from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 in that it does not contain the heavenly imagery of the transfer of power. Here, I believe that the dial is turned a little more to the far side compared to Daniel 2, but it's still mostly near. That is to say, it is ancient history from our perspective. The primary purpose of this prophecy was to warn the people who would live through the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes and his defilement of the temple in 168 BC. It was to provide one of the clearest prophecies that we know was fulfilled to the day, predicting how many evening and morning sacrifices would be missed before the temple was restored, which is where we get the holiday Hanukkah from. In Daniel 8, it does blend into obvious eschatological language, 
War on the Saints, Divine Destruction, Abomination of Desolation, and there are elements here that probably apply to both the Antichrist and to Antiochus. In fact, some verses it seems equally apply. That is to say, they're half near and half far, like a blending of Antiochus's deeds with the Antichrist's deeds. But the near aspect wins out eventually as it does in Daniel 2. For example, the prophecy of the 2300 evenings and mornings is much more applicable, if not exclusively applicable, to Antiochus. If the 2300 evenings and mornings prophecy does apply to the end times, this would be the only occasion in scripture that points to some significant event with regard to the temple 1150 days after the midpoint of the 70th week during the worst part of the day of the Lord. Not impossible, but in light of the perfect fulfillment with the rededication of the temple 1,150 days after its desecration by Antiochus, it seems much more likely to be primarily, if not exclusively, about this, despite the fading in of obvious eschatological and antichrist language that occurs in this chapter, as it does in Daniel 11 when speaking about Antiochus, who is such a perfect type of the antichrist and thus engenders these parenthetical prophecies with limited application to the direct context, as is also seen with prophecies about the kings of Babylon and Tyre and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In Daniel 7, the dial is much more turned to the far side. For example, the little horn on the fourth beast refers only to the Antichrist and to future events, much like in Daniel 11 after verse 36. In Daniel 11 and 12, the dial starts out all the way down towards the near side as it discusses Alexander the Great and the wars between his successors, but as the chapter progresses, it blends at first into perfect harmony with Antiochus and the Antichrist, and then after verse 36, the dial is turned all the way to the far side as it discusses things that can only apply to the Antichrist and to the eschatological day of the Lord. To conclude this first section, I'll say that I am in agreement with the vast majority of conservative scholars that the empires in view in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then finally the Antichrist kingdom in the end times, which has ten kings and some connection to the Roman Empire. Symbolism of the Seven-Headed, Ten-Horned Beast in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapters 12, 13, and 17, the symbolic beast image represents Satan. Technically, the beast is a serpent, specifically a dragon. The seven heads are both seven kingdoms and seven kings, though the terms are used interchangeably on several occasions. The ten horns are all on a single head, the head that represents the Antichrist himself and his future kingdom. Throughout the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is called the beast, or the first beast. Though the symbolic beast is technically Satan, the word beast in subsequent verses comes to refer only to one of the seven heads of the beast. This is because the person of the Antichrist and his kingdom is the only relevant manifestation of this beast in the context of the book of Revelation. One way to think of this is the seven heads are seven occasions in history where Satan manifested himself or his kingdom in some way, the seventh head being the last occasion. The chronological order of the seven heads. I think the six other heads, besides the Antichrist in the last days, are historical empires that all had certain characteristics, such as they were all Mediterranean empires, they all controlled Israel. 
In Revelation 17.10, we are introduced to a chronological order that must be applied to these heads. It says, They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. The five that have fallen would be the Egyptian Empire with Pharaoh, the Assyrian Empire, Sennacherib, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, the Medo-Persian Empire, probably Ahasuerus from the Book of Esther, the one who is, is the Roman Empire, with probably Nero being the king representative, and the one who is yet to come is the Antichrist and his kingdom. This seems to make good sense of John's words about the Antichrist in 1 John 2.18, which says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Why does the beast in Revelation have the features of the four beasts of Daniel 7? The beast that rises from the sea in Revelation 13 with the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion, and leopard skin, all of which are some of the many callbacks to Daniel 7 in this chapter, its other qualities mentioned in both passages, such as blasphemy and a three-and-a-half-year war on the saints, make the connection between these two chapters abundantly clear. The previous view I held was that the seven heads of the beast in Revelation 13 were derived from the grand total of heads in Daniel 7's vision of the four beasts. Since the leopard in that vision had four heads and the other three beasts had one, the total number of heads of the four beasts was seven in Daniel chapter 7. My new view and the traditional view necessarily sees that head count as coincidental. It requires the leopard with four heads to be counted only once, as it is only representative of one empire, i.e. the Grecian Empire. The reason that the beast in Revelation 13 is clothed with lion, leopard, bear, and diverse beast attributes from Daniel 7 is because the beast is Satan, and each one of its heads are manifestations of his past attempts at world domination and the destruction of the saints. In other words, this is a symbolic picture of Satan's biography, from his first attempt to rule the world and eradicate the saints to his final attempt. In the picture of this beast in its final form in the book of Revelation, it includes two heads which were not mentioned in Daniel, that is, Egypt and Assyria. This is because both of those empires were before Daniel's time and thus were not relevant to the visions of the future in the book of Daniel. The Mediterranean Issue in Daniel 7, verse 2, it says that the four beasts come up from the, quote, Great Sea, which is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, as it is in other places in the Bible. The empires that are often proposed to be a part of the seven heads of the beast are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. If you look at all of them on a map, you will see that they all gained progressively more control of the Mediterranean Sea each one gaining a little more territory than the previous empire, until the Roman Empire, which marked the first and last time a kingdom controlled the entire Mediterranean Sea and coastline. I believe that the Bible is saying that this total control of the Great Sea by the Roman Empire is a significant event that is noted with regard to the Roman Empire in the Bible, but is also the chief way in which the Antichrist's kingdom in the last days will be like the Roman Empire when it arrives on the scene. I believe that scripture speaks of this total geographic control of the Mediterranean Sea in reference to both ancient Rome and the Antichrist kingdom in Daniel 2.40, Daniel 7.7, .7, and Daniel 7.20. I'll quickly read those three passages. 
A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth, it was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Later on in Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, etc. And then in Daniel 2, it says, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, insomuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others, where you saw the feet and toes, etc., etc. So the final beast is said to be, quote, different than the other kingdoms and that it devours the rest or remainder of something. As a side note, in the original language, the verses about devouring the rest are oddly constructed. And as a result, there's almost no consensus as to exactly what these verses mean or how they should be translated. If you read it more or less literally, the verse would say, and as iron which breaks all these, it will crush and break. Since there's no commas in the original text, translators struggle with whether to include all these with the preceding clause, as in, and as iron which breaks in pieces all these, it will crush and break, or whether to put it with the final clause, as in, and as iron which breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these. With the Daniel 7 passages, there is a similar difficulty in translation, as can be seen by looking at the different translations between, say, the ESV and the NIV. The ESV says, A fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. The NIV says, A fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. So what does the what was left go with the final verb to stamp or with the all three verbs to devour, break in pieces, and to stamp? I don't propose to know the correct translation, but I would suggest that based on phrases like it devours the rest in Daniel 7.7 and 7.20, it seems like a good starting hypothesis that the rest could be a reference to the remainder of the lands around the Mediterranean that were not conquered until the Romans. This has some support, as we've seen, because the Mediterranean is specifically mentioned as the place that these beasts come out of, that is, the Great Sea. It also has the circumstantial evidence mentioned earlier that each of these empires progressively controlled more of the Great Sea, culminating in the total control of the Mediterranean by the Roman Empire, a feat that has never been seen since that time. This theory would also mean that we would have a future map of the world during the Antichrist's rise to power in the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. We would be on the watch for a nation or coalition of nations that controls the entire Mediterranean coast again, especially if there are 10 of those nations, though it is possible that they are not a coalition at all until the wars of the Antichrist unite them. This also makes good sense of the, quote, subduing of the three kings, since we can see from Revelation 17 that whatever the Antichrist does to the three kings will not be the end of them. They will give their authority to the Antichrist and continue to rule with him in some way. So the total number of the kings is still 10, despite the three being subdued. Daniel 11, 42 through 43 says, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, but he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. 
It is also reasonable to conclude that in the end times there will be ten nations bordering the Mediterranean because the Little Horn comes after the ten kings are established. Though I would say it's not necessary that those ten kings around the Mediterranean are a coalition before the wars of the Antichrist. I should also say in that verse that I read, it's really the preamble to that with the king of the south in the actual battle with Egypt that causes the subsequent sort of taking of its precious things and the obvious subservience of Egypt and the others. The Revived Roman Empire my current position is that the Bible intends us to understand that the Antichrist's kingdom in the end times is in some way like the Roman Empire, though I don't endorse many of the ways people try to prove this. My current understanding is that the main, if not the only reason, that the Antichrist's kingdom is like the Roman Empire is the aforementioned total control of the Mediterranean. The two-staged or revived Roman Empire concept is derived in part from the belief that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are speaking of the same kingdoms. Additional evidence for this can be found, though, in Revelation 13 and 17. If Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are linked, then it follows that Daniel 7 must be a two-staged empire which means that the last empire somehow exists in the first century and is, quote, revived in the last days. This is because Daniel 7 is so full of Antichrist references when speaking of the fourth beast, so we know it must be speaking of the last days. But because the fourth beast follows Greece, some aspect of the fourth beast must also be the Roman Empire in the first century. Symbolically speaking, in this view, the fourth beast itself would be the Roman Empire in the first century, but the ten horns and the little horn that follows it are the revived portion in the last days. Though in Daniel 2, it doesn't make the last days aspect of the feet and toes explicit, it can reasonably be read back into the text, that is, the legs of iron would represent the Roman Empire, and the feet and toes of iron and clay represent the last days empire. Though, as I mentioned earlier, I think the feet and toes are a dual fulfillment prophecy that also can be applied to the fall of the Roman Empire in the 4th century. Another reason to connect Daniel 2 and 7 and thus validate the two-staged or revived nature of the final beast is that while the verses we discussed earlier, Daniel 7, 7, Daniel 7, 19-20, Daniel 2, 40-41, are difficult to translate, they have the same difficult-to-translate pattern and in the same context in both Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. So whatever they mean, it seems that they're saying the same thing, and thus the two passages are probably linked. Some claim that there is additional evidence of the revived Roman Empire view in Daniel 9, where it speaks of, quote, the people of the prince who is to come. But that, I feel, is confirmation bias, though the final verse in Daniel 9 is certainly speaking of the Antichrist in the last days. The verse about the prince who is to come is speaking of, in my opinion, the armies of Titus, who destroyed the temple and the sanctuary despite the explicit and fervent pleas for them to stop by Titus, who was a prince in every possible definition of the word and was to come from Daniel's perspective. I talk about this extensively in my commentary, which is again for free at BibleProphecyText.com. All my books are there for free to read online. I go through all the different quotations from Josephus on this point, and I really want to make the point here to you right now, because I think a lot of people hear this and they think, oh, the prince who is to come, I've just always heard that has to be about the Antichrist, and you must have some reason for doing that. You know, I'm, I'm sneaking this in so, you, so you'll believe my version of events. But there is no 
no gain for me uh, uh, on taking that interpretation of Daniel 9. Um, I do think it's futuristic, as I just said. Daniel 9, 27 is speaking of the Antichrist, but that part before that is not. It's speaking of Titus. Um, and again, there's no, no hidden agenda there. It's just what that is. I think a lot of people, they get mad when not everything is, the futurists get mad when not everything is futurist and the sort of the historicists or the preterists get mad when not everything is preterist. But jumping back into this, additionally, some people claim that there is evidence for this revived Roman Empire view in the seven or so references in the book of Revelation to the mortal wound of the Antichrist. It is crucial to know that these two views are not mutually exclusive. From my limited survey of conservative commentators, I would say that the majority of those that teach the revived Roman Empire view, or some variation of that, also teach that the Antichrist will have a physical wound which he will appear to recover from, though they will disagree on whether it's a genuine resurrection or a fake one. There are, however, some revived Roman Empire proponents that say that the references to this apparent resurrection of the Antichrist are only to be understood as a nation resurrecting from the dead, a view I consider to be short-sighted and untenable. All right, so at this point, I'm going to jump into arguments for a literal resurrection of the Antichrist from the dead, something that I have uh, done before and you've probably heard me talk about. I'm doing it here mostly to have a springboard to talk about Revelation 17, where I kind of conclude this uh, overarching argument and then just hit a couple various sort of problem passages and other things that I need to work on uh, with this idea. So arguments for a literal resurrection of the Antichrist from the dead. Some will argue against the idea that these seven verses are speaking of a literal resurrection of the Antichrist because they rightly assume that Satan cannot raise the dead. But that objection can be done away with by connecting the so-called strong delusion in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, in which God deliberately sends a strong delusion on the earth dwellers so that they would embrace the lie of the Antichrist. Understanding 2 Thessalonians 2 also helps to understand the reference to the Antichrist, quote, coming out of the abyss, which is a euphemism used two other times in the Bible to refer to the resurrection of the dead, and it seems to mean that in Revelation 17 as well. In the book of Revelation, several times it ties the recovery from the deadly wound to the worship of the Antichrist. In other words, they are worshiping the Antichrist in part because his deadly wound was healed. And this worship is also tied to the earth dwellers' names not being written in the book of life. It seems unlikely that the world will worship a nation because it seems to recover from a deadly wound. Even those commentators who argue that the resurrection is only speaking of a nation tend to agree that the earth dwellers are worshiping the literal person of the Antichrist, not a nation, which again is complicated by the Bible at least twice tying this worship to the resurrection. Such a position requires you to disregard, or at least to minimize, the clear language that has been associated with the person of the Antichrist in other places in the Bible. Things like him having a mouth speaking blasphemies, or his rule of three and a half years, or his war on the saints. To be logically consistent, none of those characteristics can be applied to the person of the Antichrist, which causes a myriad of problems since all of those and more were firmly established in the book of Daniel, where it is clear that a man is in view with the abomination of desolation and the persecution that follows it.
and both Jesus and Paul seem to validate the traditional interpretation of the abomination of desolation and the events that follow it being associated with a man. The pronouns he, him in the book of Revelation and 2 Thessalonians 2 are additional reasons to understand this as a man. A good example is in Revelation 13, which says, Thus no one was allowed to buy or sell things unless he bore the mark of the beast, that is, his name or his number. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has insight calculate the number of the calculate the beast's number, for it is a man's number, and his number is 666. The beast wound only makes sense in the mortal sense, and I quote here, Revelation 13, 3, 12, and 14, talking about, they say, uh, <clears throat> in amazement, uh, his lethal wound has been healed. The first beast whose lethal wound has been healed. Uh, make an image of the beast who's been wounded by the sword but did live. The very concept of a mortal wound implies he is mortal. If one of the heads is human, it's logical to assume that they all are. This jives with Revelation 17, 10, which says that the seven heads are seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and one is yet to come. This would then suggest that Satan has throughout history made specific appearances as a man. I do not deny that kingdoms are also in view in the seven beasts. I think both are meant, which is why it, why it says that there are seven mountains and seven kings in the interpretation of the angel. The literal resurrection of the Antichrist makes the best sense of something I call the resurrection Rosetta Stone theory. This is when I take several verses about this in the book of Revelation, and you can see they have the same pattern in many cases, and I believe that is intentional in order to uh, essentially define terms for us. So, for example, in, the, in Revelation 13, we have this theme about the mortal wound and the earth dwellers and the worship. Uh, 13.3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth earth dwellers marveled as they worshiped the beast. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast in context of getting the mortal wound and it being healed. Revelation 13, 12, it, the false prophet, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth, the earth dwellers and its inhabitants worship, so earth dwellers worshiping the beast, whose mortal wound was healed. So they're worshiping, tying the worship to the mortal wound. Revelation 13, 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the first beast, it deceives who, those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and did live. So this image of the beast we'll see later is actually used to make them worship the beast. And it is telling them that it's being done because of the uh, wound which was healed. And all that helps us to interpret later in the book of Revelation, Revelation 17, 8, when it says, And the dwellers on the earth, the same exact term the earth dwellers used before in Revelation 13, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world, will marvel, the same word used to uh, with, uh, earlier in Revelation 13, when they see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So what do we know for sure? Well, we know the earth dwellers were marveling at the beast for some reason earlier. What was that reason earlier? It was because he had the wound from the sword but did live. Here it says the exact same thing in the exact same way, but it changes wounded from the sword uh, but lived to was and is not and is to come. And if you're following so far on this concept of the Revelation Rosetta Stone theory, there's two other verses to, that we can now use, because now that we've defined was and is not as resurrection from the dead, which I think is a pretty solid thing to do based on the earlier section, Revelation 17, 8a says, the beast that you saw was and is not 
and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, Revelation 17a is reiterated in 17.11 during the interpretation. It says, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So you see that same pattern. The only thing that's different, you've got the was and is not at the beginning of both of those and the goes to the destruction at the end of both of those seems to signify that the phrase sandwiched in the middle in eight um, is about to rise of the bottomless pit and in 11 is an eighth but belongs to the seven is the same thing contextually. And you can see how those can mean the same thing, especially when you plug in what I said earlier, that rising from the bottomless pit, which in the Greek is abyss, is used in two other occasions in the uh, New Testament, Acts 2, 27 through 32, Romans 10, verses 6 and 7, to be a euphemism of rising from the dead. Um, to come out of the abyss is to rise from the dead. So being an eighth, but belonging to the seven explains how he can be, there really is only, there's technically eight rulers, but there still is only seven because one of them rules twice. So it's another way to say the same thing in this sort of Rosetta Stone theory, I believe really gives us solid ground to understand that. I think one of the reasons that Revelation 17 particularly is so difficult is because you don't know where, you know, as I said before, it's kind of like the final exam. Whatever you're doing with Revelation 13, Revelation 12 has to, you know, have to pay the bill here in Revelation 17. And part of that that's difficult is that it's speaking clearly, I think, on the one hand of a resurrection. It's taking the mortal wound and the wounded by the sword, but did live from Revelation 13. And it's importing that into these terms of, you know, uh, um, was and is not and is to come and rising from the bottomless pit in Revelation 17a in the same context as we just looked at. But that's not to say that it cannot also apply to the revived Roman Empire aspect. My personal view is that the only time it's really even speaking of anything kind of like that Definitely in Revelation 17 is in 10, where it talks about the chronology of the kings. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. That, I believe, has to be speaking of the sort of chronology of the nations or kings, as it were. But when it goes on after that, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to the destruction. I can see that verse as a dual fulfillment, at least. Is It, it is an eighth. Uh, but it's also one of the seven, can apply to either if you're talking about the resurrection or to the sort of revival of the Roman Empire, as it were. They both work. And it's one of the reasons, it's certainly not the reason I said this. In fact, the, the, the reason that I say that you have to interpret the heads of the dragon as both kings and kingdoms is because of really the grammar and the way that it uses it. It's almost as if the Bible is demanding that you understand that they are both there, not one or the other. I believe anybody that demands that it has to be one or the other is is missing something. They're not reading all of the instances that are, that are relevant to this because you can't box this in and say it's one or the other. But the reason that I, say, I think it's interesting here is because that line in 11 can be both. It may be one or the other. If I had to guess if it was one or the other, I would say it's speaking of the resurrection in that case, not the revival of the Roman Empire. But I would be willing to be wrong about that. And as I say, it's, it's totally possible that it can be dual fulfillment, but you can't take one or the other out of that, especially the resurrection component. All right, wrapping up with two major problems I have with this theory. Number one, 
One of the main problems I have with this theory is Daniel 7.12, which says that after the fourth beast's body is burned by God, the other three beasts have their dominion taken away, but are allowed to, quote, live on for a season and a time after that. This, in my opinion, is not explained well by anyone holding to the traditional view or some variation of it, because it would mean that after the Antichrist is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the 70th week, Neo-Babylonia, Medo-Persia, and Greece are allowed to live on, but not with their ruling authority, i.e. dominion. If this was speaking of distinct countries or geographical areas, I could easily explain it as countries having their ruling authority taken away, but being allowed to continue to exist as distinct places during the millennium, under the dominion of Christ, since many nations are mentioned as existing in subservient, uh, in a subservient fashion during the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. The problem is that if we are to remain consistent, then these beasts are empires that rose and fell in the ancient past, and much of the land that they held was shared by the other empires. For example, all of the territory held by the Babylonian Empire was later held by both the Medo-Persian, Greece, and Roman empires. There is nothing geographically unique about the Babylonian Empire to live on as distinct from the other empires listed. Some commentators, even conservative futurists, will take this all as a reference to past events. These nations lived on in the sense that when the subsequent nation conquered them, their people and cultures were assimilated into the new empire. That view, in my opinion, cannot work because this living on but without dominion seems to be chronologically after the Antichrist is killed at the end of the 70th week. Phrases like continued to watch and kept looking until all seem to make that pretty clear. One solution to this problem is that by the other beasts, the angel means the entirety of the lands in view in this chapter, because it's not enough to say that the angel means that the other nations that were not controlled by the Antichrist, because the Antichrist controlled all of the nations in the traditional view. So it must be a more or less generic reference to all the lands that were involved and that they will have their dominion transferred to Christ, but will be allowed to worship and serve Christ as is described in the various millennial passages in the Old and New Testaments that describe Christ's relationship with the surrounding nations during that time. Another problem, I feel that adding Egypt and Assyria to round out the number of heads in the book of Revelation, as the vast majority of commentators who hold to the traditional view do, is not demanded or really even hinted at in Daniel or Revelation. Nevertheless, I think this view that adding Egypt and Assyria makes the most sense of the available data, especially the Revelation 17 verse 5, have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come, which boxes the interpretation into a chronology-based scheme that spans a long period of time. And because you can easily understand the four beasts featured prominently in Daniel's vision to be uh, four of the heads, it is at least logical to include Egypt and Assyria who have the same characteristics, that is to say Mediterranean-based empires that controlled and persecuted Israel, with the difference being that they were before Daniel's time and thus not important to mention in the visions of, the few, uh, in the visions of future empires of the world. Okay, that is it, everybody. Um, that is my sort of unification theory of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. 
it is, as I say, a kind of hypothesis that I think I should test out as I go through certainly the book of Revelation. I think I'm going to go through Daniel uh, 11 before that, just to kind of test this out there to see if the subduing three kings really makes sense of that war there, and then move on to Revelation and really dig into, for example, Revelation 12 and 13, where some people say, for example, that that isn't the same seven-headed, ten-horned beast, and really just go through it with a fine-tooth comb, because, you know, as I say, this is just a hypothesis. I, I believe it. I think I can go with it, but, um, you know, we need to find out if there's deal breakers as well. So, Thank you for uh, listening. You can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com or read the books at BibleProphecyText.com all for free. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.